Matthew 27, 1. I um, had two weeks to be pondering over this passage, and um, it's strange how much this passage has um, really just drawn me into it, uh, how it has ministered to me and um, opened certain things up to me in a way that I didn't expect. And um, if any of you have read ahead, I know some of you do, and read ahead in this passage, you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I mean, this is a tragic passage. And as we get into it, we'll, you'll see that, that it's just, it's, it's a tragedy. And yet the thing is, is that within it, there are some incredibly important lessons for us to learn. This has some, some very important things for us to say, and, and foremost among those things that it has to say to us is what it is that we should do and what it is that we shouldn't do when we know that we have blown it and sinned in really big ways. And that's something that is really practical for all of us because every one of us have this in common. We've all sinned, and we all will sin. And we're going to sin in ways that are going to be very painful for us. We're going to sin in ways that afflict us with guilt and make us feel terrible. And when that happens, we need to know what not to do, and we need to know what to do. And Judas actually gives us a really powerful picture of that here in this passage before us this morning. And so what is it that we do in those situations? And what is it that we don't do? (laughs) Well, those are the things that I want us to look at this morning in our passage. So Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. Let us give honor to the reading of God's word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. 
This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace and kindness in our lives and and that in coming to you, we come to a God who is full of mercy and full of kindness. And this morning, Father, as we look at this passage, I, I do pray that, um, that you, by your spirit, would really impress upon us those, uh, those things that are most important for us to see here. So that by the gracious working of your spirit, we might be led into a a deeper relationship with you. And that in the end, you would be honored and glorified and we as your people would be blessed. So Father, please grant these things and grant me much grace and clarity in proclaiming these things so that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, would be honored. And I ask this in your name. Amen. Well, if there is one word I would use to describe this passage, it would be the word tragic. It's tragic on every level. It's tragic what happens to Jesus, that this one who was someone who just went about doing good, healing the sick and feeding the hungry and delivering the demon-oppressed, that this man would be betrayed, bound, and delivered over to Pilate for crucifixion. It's also tragic what happens to Judas, that a man who was so privileged (laughs) so as to walk with Jesus for three years, witnessing all that he had done, listening to all that he had said, even participating in it, being thrilled at the powers that had been given to him when he, one of the 72 at the time, was sent out, experienced his power in delivering others from demon oppression. And yet this man who was so privileged ends up in a place of such terrible guilt-ridden despair that the only way out that he can think of is to take his own life. And it's also tragic in the way the chief priests and the elders act. These are supposed to be the leaders in Israel, the shepherds over the people, those who would would uphold justice, those who would care for the well-being of those whom, whom they were entrusted to, who had been entrusted to them. And yet, what do we see them doing here? What, how do we see them behaving? We see them corrupting justice with absolutely no regard whatsoever for, for this man and his guilt. All out of this just insatiable lust to kill a man whom they know is innocent. And so it, at every turn, you read these 10 verses and, and all you see is, is tragedy. It's a tragedy of of the highest order. But amidst this grand tragedy, there is is one figure who really seems to garner our attention here, isn't there? I think if I asked you all, kind of like, you tell me what this passage is about or who this passage is about, I think we'd all say the same thing. It's about Judas. 
And it's strange because Matthew, he paints this picture of Judas for us in, in what could almost be described as a sympathetic way. I mean, if you notice, he, he doesn't portray Judas as this sort of inhuman, devil-like character, that, you know, horns on his head, who's destined for the, the deepest part of hell like we find in medieval literature, Dante's Inferno and so forth. He doesn't portray him like that, but rather he portrays him as a guilt-ridden sinner who knows that he has committed a terrible sin and is now frantically trying to do all that he can do to make things right. I mean, that's how Matthew portrays him. If you're just looking at this text, that's the image that we get of Judas here in this passage. And in that regard, Judas looks extremely human here, doesn't he? I mean, he looks like so many people in the world today. People who are filled with guilt and filled with despair people who know that they've sinned and are now just trying to somehow make it better. But they don't know how. See, like Judas, nothing is working for them. So what are they to do? And where are they to turn to so as to not end up like Judas? Well, that's the question that this passage confronts us with, and the more I read it over these past couple of weeks, the more I felt confronted by that question. It's the question of, what do you do when you know you've blown it and you feel terrible about it? you do well, strangely Judas helps us to answer that question and so this morning I want to focus on Judas and I want us to see where he went wrong and I want us to see what he could have done to make it right and so we begin then with where he went wrong but in seeing where he went wrong we must First of all, admit that Judas did start off doing a bunch of things right. And we see this in verse 3 as Judas witnesses Jesus being betrayed and beaten and bound and delivered over to Pilate where he would be crucified. And in the midst of all of that, witnessing all of that, Judas suddenly feels the true gravity of his sin upon himself. It's as if suddenly in seeing all of this, the light goes on in Judas's mind and he thinks, my goodness, what is it that I have done? And so we're told that he had a change of mind. And with that change of mind, he snaps into action to make things right going to the chief priests and to the elders of the city to give them back their 30 pieces of silver that they had given to him to betray him. 
confessing to them his sin, telling them that he had betrayed an innocent man. And so here we have a, a, a very real and a very powerful show of contrition and confession and change. As Judas is, is clearly sorry for what he has done. And he owns it. He owns it without making any excuse, any rationale, any justification. He says, I have sinned. Would you love it if people you knew in your life would come and just simply say that to you? I have sinned. And he says how he has sinned. He didn't just leave it generic. I have sinned and this is how I have sinned. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. I mean, he calls sin, sin. And he names his sin. And then he goes even one step further. He gives the money back. I mean, he is doing everything he can to try to make things right. And at this point, I think we'd all, if we didn't know the previous chapters, we'd say, oh my gosh, he's doing everything right. I, 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 this, is how, this is how I want to respond when I'm made aware of my own sin. This is how I want others to respond when they're made aware of their own sin. I want to see this. I want to see this type of confession, this kind of ownership, this kind of, of change, of, like radical, where I, I'm actually giving back what I took. This is what I want to see. And thus clearly Judas is moving on the right track and moving in the right direction. And Matthew wants us to see this. He tells us that, that Judas changed his mind. The word that's used here is, is very closely associated with the word that is often translated as repent, metanao. This is a a word that is similar to that, but different. But it's a word that has that same characteristic of positive change. We actually find this word used uh, earlier, back in the parable of the two sons. Remember that parable where Jesus tells of the, the father who has a vineyard, and he tells his two sons to go and work in the vineyard, and the first son says, I will go, and then doesn't go. And the second, says, I won't set. the second son says, I won't go. And then we're told he changed his mind, same verb, and went. So there was a, a change from disobedience to obedience. A change from going in the wrong direction to going in the right direction. And that's the verb that's used here with Judas. Because Judas was now... Moving in the right direction. Positive change was taking place. But then suddenly and abruptly, in verse 5, that change stops. 
We see that as in response to his confession, falling on the deaf ears of the chief priests and elders. Judas throws the silver into the temple and goes and hangs himself. I, I, I mean, it, it, it's just like he's just moving just totally in the right direction. There is what appears to be repentance. It, it, so we'll see it's not, but it appears to be, has many of the same characteristics that we find in repentance. But he's changed and he's moving in the right direction and suddenly it stops and, and it's like we're reading along and then boom, throws the temple of silver and goes and hangs himself. And suddenly this hopelessness wins out. And, and again, if you, if, you, if you separate out the fact that this is Judas and and you just see this as a man who is full of despair over feeling terrible guilt for the sin that he has committed. I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for him. Because it's like he wanted to do the right thing. So he goes to the chief priests, the shepherds of Israel. He confesses his sin. He pronounces Jesus' innocence. But they're unconcerned, completely unconcerned. What is that to us? The NIV translates, I think, it, I think they translate, it's your responsibility. <laughs> we don't care. Now, none of this is to... to you know, make, make it out like Judas is the victim here, okay? Because he's not, but it's simply to say that there are a lot of people who feel like Judas felt. And that's what I kept getting stuck on. There's a lot of people who feel like Judas felt. People who have enormous amounts of guilt, but all they seem to hear is, what is that to us? It's kind of your problem. People feel like nobody cares. Sadly, those who pretend to care don't. But like those whom Jesus went to, these religious authorities, they just care about their agenda. I was thinking about young people struggling with questions about gender and sexuality as this stuff is just rammed at us from every possible direction constantly. And how so often they end up connecting with people, social media or wherever else, who are just promoting these destructive ideologies. And how these people come across as, as so caring, 
so concerned for you to be able to live your authentic self, so concerned about that. And yet, they could care less about the individual, but they just care about the agenda. It's all about furthering that agenda. And if you think otherwise, just listen to the testimonies of those who transitioned and all the love and support that they got from all of these people around them who seemed to care so deeply about them and then went on to detransition and see how much those people really cared about them. They cared nothing. But it's all about the agenda. No different than what Judas was dealing with. The agenda. Jesus must die. If you're a consequence of our war on Jesus, so be it. This is about advancing an agenda. And it's tragic. Because people are hurting. People are confused. People are filled with guilt. And what is that to us? This is where Judas was at. And Judas ended up going out and hanging himself. But again, Judas isn't the only one who is, we could say messed up here in this passage. But Matthew wants us to see just how messed up the religious system, the religious authorities were as well. Their hypocrisy was just next level. And so he gives us a little behind the scenes as to how they're kind of dealing with uh, all of this amongst themselves. Got this 30 pieces of silver back and and they're sitting here thinking all about, well, hmm, it's not lawful for us to use blood money, put it in the treasury. We can't use this silver for anything related to the temple and our very holy business of worshiping God. Of course, we can bribe someone. We can frame an innocent man. We can torture him and put him brutally to death. But heavens forbid, we use this little bit of silver over here in the temple treasury where we can't. We're such good law-abiding leaders, aren't we? It's just, it's magnifying the very thing that Jesus spoke of when he referred to them as, as swallowing a camel, but straining out a gnat. And so, verse 7, they come up with a solution. That is to buy a field to bury strangers in. You know, people are journeying through Jerusalem. Somebody dies, nobody claims him. It could be a Gentile, it could be anything. God have a place to bury him. And this kind of is a way to earn them a little favor among the people. Hey, we're going to buy this field to bury strangers in. All of this is done, as Matthew tells us in verse 9, in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, if any of you are kind of the, you know, like to dig into the weeds here, you uh, may have noticed or may notice if you do it in the future that, that here... Matthew assigns this prophecy to Jeremiah, and yet 
the closest thing we have to a specific reference here to what he's speaking of is actually found in Zechariah. But instead, what we find in Jeremiah is we find just a number of allusions that are given that refer to a field and refer to a field of blood and refer to different things. And so, so what Matthew is doing is taking all of them together, a specific prophecy from Zechariah, all of these sort of prophetic words from Jeremiah, blending them all together and then attributing it to the greater of the two prophets, which is something the New Testament writers will do. If ever there are numerous prophets who are cited together in a place, only the greatest prophet will be the one who is referred to. And so that's what Matthew is doing here. But nevertheless, the, the point of it all is that these religious leaders are experts at focusing on the minute, minute aspects of the law, tithing their mint and dill and cumin, and at the same time neglecting the weightier things of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. But all of that then brings us back to Judas. And specifically to the question of what should he have done differently here? He was going in the right direction. Done a lot of things that were really right, really admirable, things that you and I want to do when we're made aware of our sin. But then suddenly he goes completely wrong. So what should he have done differently? Because clearly I think we could say, and it's important to say that, that for all of the positive things Judas did, this wasn't indicative of true repentance. And, and we know so because Jesus actually refers to him as the son of destruction. Jesus also says of him that it would have been better of him, this man, the man who would betray him, it would have been better that he had not been born. So clearly Judas didn't repent and this isn't a, a Christian who has gone out and, and hung himself. And so the question is, if, if this wasn't true repentance, then what was it? Well, this is where Paul's teaching on repentance in 2 Corinthians 7 comes in very handy. Is, as there, Paul teaches that there are, are two kinds of sorrow. There is godly sorrow, which produces repentance... And leads to salvation. That's what he says in verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7.10. And there is worldly sorrow. Which leads to death. So there are two types of sorrow. And yet the thing is. Both of these types of sorrow can and often do involve the same things. They both can and often do mirror one another. 
they both can and do often involve tears and grief and regret and guilt and shame, promises to change, swearing that I'll never do it again. They both can and often do <coughs> share those, those same qualities. And that's why it, it makes it so hard for us to know, and not just in ourselves, am I really repentant? But in someone else. Someone else sins against us in a great way. And they come with all of this, with tears, with grief, with guilt, with shame, with promises to never do it again. And we kind of throw up our hands and say, I don't know. I don't know if this person has repented or if this person hasn't repented. Because both types of sorrow involve them. But the thing is, is that the godly sorrow that produces repentance, we know that it leads to salvation. Whereas worldly sorrow leads to death. Meaning it, it, it never... It never takes you to Christ. It can take you to greater despair, greater guilt, greater shame. It can take you to, to anger, to bitterness, to resentment, to hardness of heart. It can take you to all kinds of places. But it doesn't, ta- it doesn't take you to life. And so the question is, how can we distinguish between the two? Well, we find the answer in looking again at Judas and at what he didn't do. And there is one absolutely critical thing he didn't do. He didn't return to Jesus. He didn't return to Jesus. And that was his his fatal mistake. Because at this point, after changing his mind and going to the chief priests and, and confessing his sin and telling them that he betrayed an innocent man and giving back the blood money from here, what should he have done? It's the same thing that any of us should do. When we have sinned and we are made aware of it and we confess that sin and we, we turn things around and, and vow to not do, what should we do? We should go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. That's what we do, that's what Judas should have done. Because that's what godly sorrow produces. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And that repentance leads to salvation. You see, godly sorrow always goes to Jesus. And this is something we all need to hear. And it's something we all need to know. Because it's strange. 
it's strange how when we sin and how when we sin in, 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 in bigger or greater or more harmful ways, how it's almost like we're too ashamed to go to Jesus. And so we take the Judas path. We, we need to punish ourselves. We need to, to really beat ourselves. We need to tell ourselves how miserable, miserable we are, how sinful we are, how terrible we are. And we need to inflict as much pain upon ourselves as possible. And, and that's, that's how, how we approach it. Self-flagellation. And it's like, we don't want to go to Jesus in those times. But we want to beat ourselves up. We want to punish ourselves. Thinking that by doing that, we will somehow atone for what we've done. And sadly, sometimes that's what we want to see in others too. They sin against us in a very harmful, very hurtful way. We want to see that they're really hurting over it. We want to see them punish themselves over it. See, we have this idea that somehow we're going to make things right through our own suffering. Strange. I've seen it. I've, I've, I felt it. That's precisely what Judas did. Judas felt like he had nowhere to go and no one to turn to. So he just punished himself. Tried to atone for his own sin. Matthew wants us to see this. It's in response to Judas' confession. I have betrayed innocent blood. The chief priests, again, they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. It's your, it's your responsibility. <laughs> In other words, you're the one who has to make this right. So how do you make it right? Well, the law in Numbers chapter 35, verse 33 it says, no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it. Death penalty for capital crimes. Judas tried to atone for his own sin by taking his own life. And that's such a human response to guilt to punish ourselves for what for what we've done you know, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew birthright was a big deal Gave you a place of preeminence in the family, inheritance, everything. It was, it was something to cherish, and Esau despised it. Ah, what good is a birthright to me if I'm dead because I'm so hungry? And so he exchanged it for 
bowl of stew. Hebrews 12 tells us that Esau then sought to get that birthright back. Tears, it was begging, it was pleading. It was just this, I'm so sorry. And yet there was no repentance to be found. You see, our own response to our sin is just, it is so often to just punish ourselves and we just get sort of stuck on ourselves. And yet the thing is, is that, you know, while deep sorrow over sin is one aspect of godly sorrow, it is far from a foolproof sign of it. Even as that's the thing we're, we're, we're so often wanting to really, really see. We want to see that deep sorrow. And again, it, it is... It is an aspect of godly sorrow that produces repentance. But it's just one aspect and it is not foolproof because it exists in worldly sorrow as well as godly sorrow. But what is critical to it is that there is a turning to Jesus. And turning to him knowing that there is mercy, knowing that there is grace, knowing that there is forgiveness. This is something our, our standards, the Westminster standards, they, they speak of in Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 87. It asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And listen to the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now I love that because notice what it is that, that, that compels repentance here. It is number one, a, a true sense of our sin. Judas had that, right? A true sense of our sin. Number two, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Like you have to have that. In order to really repent, you have to have apprehended the mercy of God in Christ. That indeed, the, the weight and the guilt of the sin that I feel, that I actually can come to one who is merciful and gracious and forgives me. So that that's what I actually do. You see, this is, this is part and parcel to repentance. I love it. It's, it's being gripped by this truth, apprehending this truth that our God is a merciful God. He's a merciful God. He forgives. And it's realizing that having been convicted of your sin and, and convinced of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, 
that with grief and hatred we turn from our sin and pledge a new obedience to God. See, it's so important to just know and apprehend and gripped by this truth. Because if you're not, it, it, makes, it makes repentance so much harder. But knowing who he really is, if he is a merciful, a gracious, a forgiving God, it, it facilitates it. It's, it's like a, a child who has, who has blown it. If that child feels like there is no mercy and no grace and no forgiveness to be found at home with mom or dad, but it, it's just harshness and judgment and condemnation. That child is going to be much more prone to run and hide and lie and do everything to avoid. But if they know there's mercy, if they know there's forgiveness, if they know there's grace, well, now they can come and they can confess. See, it's the same way for them as it is for us. We need to apprehend the fact that our Lord is a merciful God. A God who is gracious and forgiving. And this is what we need to recognize when we're considering our own repentance or the repentance of others. You know, we don't want to sit there and think, have I beat myself up sufficiently? Have I punished myself enough? Have I, have I pled and said I'm sorry enough? But it's, do I have a true sense of my sin? And have I made a visible turn from that sin and am now leaning wholly on the mercy of Jesus Christ? That's it. That's the issue. And that's what we want to be looking for in ourselves, and it's what we want to be promoting in others. It is a Christwardness. Christwardness. Now, I'll be the first to admit it's not always an easy thing to discern this godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow <laughs> in oneself or in another individual, but. But the thing is, is that ultimately time will tell. And ultimately time did tell with Judas. Didn't take long. Judas did not apprehend the mercy of Christ. You know, it's fascinating how Judas and Peter's accounts are placed side by side. Peter denied Christ. Swore he didn't know him. And even pronounced a curse upon himself if he was lying. But Peter seemed to have apprehended the mercy of Christ. So here we have two who are completely unfaithful. But it's apprehending the mercy of Christ so that we indeed will return to him and experience the forgiveness that is to be found in him.
And so it is then, there is a lesson in all of this for us. As here we um, do learn a few good things from Judas. <laughs> things we should do when we sin. We should confess our sin. We should own it. We should name it. Sin against someone, say, oh, I'm sorry, I sinned against you. Say, I'm sorry, I lost my temper. Please forgive me. We should name it. And we should stop moving in the direction of our sin. We should seek to make amends the right that we have done. Have done. Judas, he gave back the silver. See, these are things that we can and should do, things that do accompany godly sorrow and produce repentance. But we also learn what we should not do. We should not wallow in despair over our sin, beating ourselves up, punishing ourselves until we feel we have sufficiently atoned for the wrong that we have done. But instead, what we should do is come to Christ, knowing that he is merciful and gracious and forgiving. And this is so important for us to know because in the end, and this is what you really, really need to know, you are forgiven not because you are sufficiently sorry. That's not why you're forgiven. Might be why you forgive somebody else because they're sufficiently sorry, but it's not why you're forgiven with God. But you're forgiven because you have thrown yourself on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're forgiven. Friends, that's how this passage drives us to Jesus. <laughs> Does so by showing us the despair of a guilt-written man who had nowhere else to go. And to us, we're sitting there reading it saying, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. And that's what I say to anyone who hears, who is burdened with the guilt of their own sin. Punishing yourself isn't going to make it better. Going to Jesus does. It's going to him. Going to him knowing he is merciful and he is gracious and he is forgiving. Our Savior is a real Savior who forgives real sinners of very real sins that we commit. This is the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. For indeed, our sins are many. And yet, Lord, we just... We know you are a gracious and a merciful God. And if any don't know this, if any are, are not sure of this, I pray that you would press this home to them, that they would indeed apprehend that you are a merciful God. 
and that there is no sin that anyone ever commits that they can't in turn come to you and say, Lord, please forgive me, have mercy on me, and have absolute confidence and assurance that they indeed are forgiven. Please, Lord, make your people sure of this and make those in the world, those who are, are hurting and despairing and ridden with guilt and, and feeling as though no one cares, let them know this as well, Lord. Let them know that they would indeed find relief and find salvation. Oh, Lord, please grant these things, I pray in Jesus' name.